I'm Sally Kornbluth, president of MIT, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this MIT community podcast, Curiosity Unbounded. Since I arrived at MIT, I've been particularly inspired by talking with members of our faculty who recently earned tenure. Like their colleagues in every field here, they're pushing the boundaries of knowledge. Their passion and their brilliance, their boundless curiosity, offer a wonderful glimpse of the future of MIT. Today, my guest is Ellen Roche. Ellen is an associate professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Her work focuses on mechanical devices and biomaterials with medical applications. She also directs the Therapeutic Technology Design and Development Lab at MIT. Now, because so much of what happens here at MIT happens in the labs, I wanted to bring Ellen on to the podcast to talk about how lab work translates to the real world. So, Ellen, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You have worked on a biorobotic heart. So this heart, I was looking forward to hearing more about this, talking to you about it. So as I understand it, in 2020, your lab developed a heart that's described as being like the real thing. Then COVID happened, and your lab, like many at MIT, had to close. And then when your lab reopened, the work continued. And I believe you actually improved on the heart by turning to 3D printing. So tell me a little bit about the story of this heart. How did it get started? Where are you now? Where are you hoping to go with it? I guess the work started kind of during my doctoral work at Harvard. I did my PhD there and I worked on a device that was an implantable device that went around a heart, like a sock or a sleeve that would be implanted around a failing heart in a person with heart failure. And it would act to give an extra assistance to the heart muscle to pump enough blood around the body. That was really kind of the first configuration or version of this soft robotic heart devices. When I started my group here at MIT, I continued that work a little bit and we made a textile sleeve. We showed that that could work even better than the original version. And then I thought, how can we use this technology to develop better test beds on the bench so that we can kind of recreate like the motion and the biomechanics of the heart on the bench to allow for better testing of devices like heart valves and implantable devices that go inside the heart and you want to test them in a very realistic setting. So the first version in 2020 was led by my first graduate student, or actually second, but first mechanical engineering graduate student, Clara. We took an explanted pig heart. Pig hearts are similar sizes to uh, human hearts. And we removed all the dead or stiffened muscle from the heart, but preserved all the intracardiac features. So all the heart valves and everything inside the heart was kept intact. And we used a very uh, specific dissection process to kind of unravel the muscle from around the heart. And then we replaced that with a synthetic soft robotic muscle that we could tune and control. And then we could basically make the heart beat again on the bench. And then you can put cameras in and sensors on it and you can measure flows and pressures, but you can recreate the heart motion, the pumping function, the valve motion. So really kind of bringing the heart back to life on the bench. So that was where it started and we used it to test a number of devices. Some of the issues with that are that it's real tissue. So there's a certain kind of shelf life. We did some work on coming up with methods to keep it functioning for longer but you still have some limitations. And we, then we thought maybe we can 
fully 3D print a heart. So we take a patient scan and get the exact anatomy. And then we use advanced 3D printers. The technology has advanced so much in recent years. And we print in a soft material so we can match exactly the anatomy of a given patient. You know, disease patients, some have congenital heart defects that are very different anatomies. And then we can use our soft robotic technologies to make a sleeve that goes around it or to create a band that goes around the vessel so we can create narrowing. And then we have this pumping heart on the bench again, but we can create different disease types and we can tune them. Um, we can use them to learn more about the biomechanics, to test devices. With that, then we can print different edge cases of anatomies. We can look at various different devices and tune it depending on what we're trying to test. So now moving forward, we think, how about moving towards printing an entire total artificial heart? We're way away from that now, but if we can do that, you can envision the people who are kind of at end stage heart failure that are waiting for a transplant and on these long lists could actually have a printed entirely synthetic beating heart that has active you know, motion and everything that replicates their own native heart. That's pretty incredible. So it seems then that in the current state, for example, if a patient needs a particular assistive device, you can see how it will interact with their own physiology. Mm -hmm. In your original work, the sleeve work that you did as a graduate student, was that ever actually deployed clinically? Not yet, no. I think for this type of like class three is the highest risk medical device, the regulatory approval takes a lot of time, as it should. So I think that would take quite a bit of work to advance that to be implanted in humans. And part of the reason for the pivot towards these benchtop models was because you can deploy them quicker and they can be used and translated in industry a lot quicker than a very high risk uh, device. But we're still trying to pursue both in parallel. Some have kind of nearer term goals than the long term implant. You know, I guess also, correct me if I'm wrong, but the artificial hearts could be used for models in particular patients can be used by surgeons to map out their approach, for instance, if someone has an unusual anatomy. Absolutely. Recently, we were approached by one of the local hospitals to build some models in the hospitals to train their surgeons or their attendings and their to study which type of pump to use, which type of left ventricular assist device and to, you know, tune the parameters and vary them and, and see that in real time. And the surgeon that came actually to visit the lab had seen some of the work and his mom actually had seen it and called him and was like, you need to meet these people. So he came and was excited and we we're trying to set that up. Oh, fun. Yeah. So if you were to succeed in making an entirely artificial heart that could actually be implanted, what sort of materials do you envision right, yeah. being used there? That's one of the big challenges, of mm -hmm. course. They have to be uh, biocompatible, but they have to be very robust because the heart beats, you know, a lot. <laughs> 72 <laughs> yeah. times a minute on average. And a lot of the research is going into that. Of course, the material that contacts the blood as well has to be designed very specifically because you don't want to cause clotting. We didn't have that issue with the sleeve because it was non-blood contacting. But if it's a total artificial yeah. heart, you will. And then so, you get fibrosis sometimes around yeah. that destroys the blood flow, et cetera. Exactly, yes. Depending on what part of the device we may have to functionalize in different ways. 
but there's a lot of existing implants that are proven blood contacting. So the goal at the moment is if we can build the active structure, but use, you know, approved prosthetic valves that are already implanted and have been implanted in human hearts before and haven't had issues. And then if we can use materials to line the internal surface of the heart that have been used in vascular grafts or blood contacting devices, we can kind of at least de-risk parts of it. And yeah. then we would be controlling the pumping function. Now, that's really interesting. I've heard also that another recent project in your lab concerns hydrogels mm -hmm. that can repair or replace diseased tissues. Can you tell us about that work? Maybe starting from like exactly what are hydrogels oh, for the yeah, audience yeah, and yeah. kind of going through how they might be deployed. Yeah, there's a lot of advancements in the overall hydrogel field recently. This particular gel that we're working on, it's a biopolymer and it has these unique mechanical properties where it's shear thinning so we can deliver it through a long tube. Mm. But then when it comes out of the tube or the catheter, it kind of solidifies. So it's like this phase changing. It's called a granular hydrogel, small little spheres, basically. And this is in collaboration with uh, Jennifer Lewis at Harvard, who does a lot of work in um, bioprinting and soft materials. My lab is interested in implantable devices for the heart. So we thought, can we use this material and use a catheter to deliver it? So catheter is a long tube that's inserted into the body so you can do minimally invasive procedures. And we thought, can we use this material to occlude part of the heart where clots can form and cause a stroke in patients that have arrhythmia or atrial fibrillation. So there's this little tiny part of the heart called the left atrial appendage. It's like a little outpouching from the upper chamber of the heart. And if a patient has atrial fibrillation and their upper chambers of their heart are kind of quivering, you get blood stasis in that area and clots can form and 90% of stroke causing clots form there. So if we can occlude it, it prevents clots from forming there, from going to the brain and causing a stroke. You actually are rerouting things. You stop the blood from actually going into that. This one kind, kind of, of cul-de-sac or dead it. end. Yeah, so you can put the tube up through the leg. It's minimally yes. invasive. You cross the septum of the heart and then you can fill that heart. And it basically just blocks it off from the blood flow. And the advantage of using a kind of a hydrogel biological material like that, first you can deliver it, it will stabilize yes. and then the patient's tissue will grow over it. I see. So then the only thing in contact with the blood is the patient's yes. own tissue after a certain amount of time. Yes. How about babies who are born, for instance, with, you yeah. know, a congenital hole between yeah, uh, chambers, et cetera. Could you envision using it for something like that? Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the uses we have envisioned for it. And we have other work in the lab, again, some from my doctoral work and some in the lab where we design these biopolymeric patches that can be adhered to the septum of the heart to close I see. these holes. I see. Either in, in babies or in adults, sometimes there is a defect that isn't problematic unless you're prone to clotting because right. then you right. can get you can also clots. throw clots there right, yeah. exactly so we're working on these kind of patches and adhesives that can oh, work in the blood we had a light activated adhesive delivered by a catheter oh, that could interesting 
cure this patch onto the septum of the heart. You would laser cure it or something? Is that? Yeah, yeah. We used blue light and you could activate this adhesive to oh, adhere cool. to the septum. So coat a patch with this adhesive and then two balloons and one was reflective to reflect the light. There was like a fiber optic in I the see, catheter. I see. The light would reflect back and cure the patch onto the septum and it was like flexible and elastomeric and blood compatible and then you'd take out the catheter. So it would just be this patch. Oh, very left. interesting. Again, the goal is the patient's tissue grows over yes. it. So, yeah, so that one uh, we licensed to a startup company in France, in Paris, and they were working on it for a while and they're still pursuing this defect closure as well. Very interesting. As I understand it, Earlier in your career, you worked in the medical device industry. Yes. What motivated you to make the uh, jump from industry to academia? I think when I started in industry, I was really eager to get some experience after undergrad. And there was a program in Ireland at the time, which kind of was a graduate program to do sometime in an Irish company and then sometime in a sister company abroad. So that brought me to the U.S., and when I started that, I thought I'll do some industry experience, but I always knew I wanted to do further study, a master's or a PhD. So that program brought me to California and I ended up getting involved in a project there in Abbott Vascular where we were working on a system for getting regulatory approval for one of their stents. And then I ended up there four years instead of six months. <laughs> really enjoyed it, loved the work. Then I still had that desire to do further study and learn new technologies that could be applied to devices. I was working in cardiac devices in industry and loved that part of it, but I thought maybe there's more I can learn and mm -hmm. different techniques and approaches that I could use and have this kind of open space to be creative and try different things. So there was a certain point where I was employed still on an expatriate contract from Ireland and they closed one of the sites in Galway. And at that point they were like, oh, you can either switch to a U.S. contract or, you know, take a redundancy package. And I was like, that's perfect. This is a good <laughs> chance to, I traveled for a while and then I started a master's first. It was a master's I could do while working. So I worked in Medtronic and then I said, mm -hmm. okay, I'm into the research again. And I applied for a PhD through a Fulbright science and technology program and then came to Harvard. Oh, fantastic. So do you find, I'm just curious, your own PhD students now, mm -hmm. what's sort of the split of students yeah. who are going to industry versus have aspirations for an academic career? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm six years here, so I so just... So they're just starting to They're starting. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. My eighth graduate student defended yesterday, so that was exciting. And to date, I would say there is Probably more of the students have gone to industry, but a couple have stayed in academia. And then a lot of the postdocs that have been in my lab have stayed in academia. So overall, I would say probably 50-50. Mm -hmm. But I really do encourage them all to have some sort of industry experience during their PhD because I feel like we're developing these devices that are implanted in humans. And it's really important to understand all that happens between, mm -hmm. you know, designing them in the lab and proving that they work to actually getting them into a person. There's so much like regulatory things, clinical yeah. design, yeah. you know, the design of the trial, right. the manufacturing. There's so much that's very hard right. to kind of even imagine until you spend some time in industry. So 
most of my students have done an internship. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So one of my students, Keegan, she's actually went to med school uh, mm -hmm. after she defended her PhD, but she spent time in Boston Scientific setting up some of the models she developed and other students spent time working uh, with the SO systems who do computer-aided design and mm -hmm. computational modeling. We have quite a few industry-sponsored projects now in the lab, so I think it's a good opportunity for the students to be in an academic setting but work very closely with mm -hmm. the industry personnel as well, and that can help them to kind of figure out, you know, do I want to go the industry route right, or the academic right. route? And also having realistic expectations, you know, as you're saying, knowing that the steps from right. conceiving an, an idea and showing that it works on a lab bench to actually getting it into a human. There are so many. A very, yeah. a lot of hurdles and a very long path. Speaking of students, mm -hmm. I think I often hear from faculty that what drew them to MIT is the quality of the students. So talk a little bit more about your experience yeah. collaborating with the students here, how you found it. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. I'm so lucky to get to work with such talented students. They really just impress me every day with how creative they are and diligent and collaborative because my work is interdisciplinary. I have students from mechanical engineering and then I have a lot of students from the HST program because I'm core faculty in IMS as well. And they have very different backgrounds, but you know, I love seeing how they work together to solve these problems. It's just a privilege to work with them. As well in teaching, you know, you, you teach these classes and the students are so eager to learn and just ask such smart, intelligent questions and they want more hours in the lab. It's just fantastic. Yeah, so for our listeners, our HST program in collaboration with Harvard, yeah. produces future clinician scientists, right. students who are doing MD-PhDs. And this area of research seems like a perfect mm -hmm. training ground and future career arena yeah. for students who are really interested in doing fundamental research, but making a clinical difference. Absolutely. Yeah. So some of your work is actually computational as well. Mm -hmm. So computational right. modeling. I'm wondering, first of all, how AI affects what you're doing and how it's affecting the field. But I'm also curious how you personally learned what you needed to learn to be able to apply these sort of computational approaches. I did my postdoc in computational modeling. So we look at modeling the motion of the heart, the fluid structure interaction, basically how the blood flows in, in response to the contraction of the heart and how when you implant devices that can change the mechanics of the heart and how the devices are affected by this three-dimensional motion. So I learned a lot of finite element models and different kind of computational models to study that. And we have a subgroup in the lab that work almost exclusively on computational models. More recently, I would say, we've looked at using some AI methods to kind of take multiple patient data sets, images, and try to make these synthetic anatomical models where we can parametrize different parts of the heart and, and look at different anatomies and create these kind of data-driven surrogates so we can do finite element models much quicker. And I think that will help us to use these to inform clinical practice. So you could imagine 
you go for a scan, an MRI scan, and then you have this digital twin that is your own mm, beating mm-hmm. heart. Yes. And then you can say, like, if there's an issue, this will be how your heart will perform if you have this intervention. Interesting. Or if you, you know, are trying to inform a patient about, like, what will happen if they don't make certain lifestyle changes, you could have this oh, kind yeah, of... You can show them what will happen if yeah, their arteries become right, occluded. And right, here's your heart now. and if, Here's your heart on donuts. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. um, because you wow. could have, like, you know, age-matched and wow. lifestyle-matched virtual twins. And with our work in the lab, we could also do physical twins. So, you know, here's your heart beating right now. And if we put in this LVAD, you'll get this much more output. That's fantastic. Or if you don't do anything, it's going to remodel and it's going to grow. So a lot of the computational work we were doing as well is looking at how the heart muscle adapts to various uh, pressure overloads or volume overloads. And over time, the heart will remodel, which is fascinating. It'll grow and change shape. And these computation models can predict that. You know, that's really interesting. I, I would think also, you know, people are obviously sometimes hesitant to undergo heart surgery and right. wondering what the ultimate benefit will be. Mm-hmm. Of course. But, yeah. you know, if you can say, you know, as you said, if you put in this device or you make this surgical modification or what have you, this is what oh. we predict in terms of the heart output. Yeah, absolutely. And as well as patient education, and here's why we're doing what we're doing, it can also help the surgeons to decide, you know, if we use this continuous flow pump versus this pulsatile pump, here's what it will look like, or, you know, here's the way we can fit it. I'm just curious, and you may not have a good answer to this, I'm just curious whether there are colleagues in related fields that are, in a sense, doing the same things with other organs. Mm -hmm. In other words, 3D printing. Mm -hmm. It seems a little bit different because so much of the heart function is based on, you know, large architecture as opposed to, you know, filtration capacity, let's say in a kidney or in a liver. Yeah, there definitely is. And even within my group, we've thought about how can we translate this technology to other organs or tissues. So we have actually developed an assist device for the diaphragm. Oh, because very interesting. Because like the heart, yeah. it's a large contracting muscle. It's, you know, life-sustaining. Yes. <laughs> it's mechanical. So we have developed these actuators or artificial muscles that go above the diaphragm and help to augment the downward motion of the diaphragm wow. to help with inspiration in patients that have muscular dystrophy or disorders. Or ALS or other exactly. neurodegenerative disorders. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah, that was kind of another obvious type of large mechanically yes. Um, yes. <laughs> driven composite structure that we where we could augment the native function without overtaking it. Yeah, completely. very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. But there are other groups developing as well anatomical models of various organs and yes. printing them. Yes. I think what we are trying to do a little bit different is print them but also make them active so yes. we can print and then add on these actuators or embed so that they're dynamic and they're moving right. and they're tunable and controllable and right. we can mimic disease. Right. So it's not the same as printing a static part. You know, yeah. people are printing, you know, spine components, for exactly. example. Right. Turning a little bit to some of your personal questions. So you grew up in Ireland. What was it like growing up there? Oh, it was great. I um, was so lucky looking back. You know, I think when you're a kid, you don't really appreciate and take things for granted. But uh, I grew up in Galway, close to a place called Salt Hill, which is right on the ocean there and, and close to Galway City. 
and walking distance from the university. So it was really an ideal location to be close to all that and went to school, you know, right beside the sea. And I was thinking about it recently during secondary school, which is like equivalent to high school here. We would actually go and, and swim in the ocean on our lunch break and come oh, back. Wow. But uh, yeah, we were in, it was like a Catholic school. We had uniforms and everything. They didn't really want us doing it. So we'd be like putting on the uniforms over our way <laughs> after the swim, trying to like hide our hair dripping wet. And that was great. It was a beautiful place to grow up and yeah. close to Connemara. Like you mentioned, you know, you can drive 20 minutes and you're in this very different landscape. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful area. As I mentioned before our conversation here, we were on vacation there and it was great. You wound up in a career far removed probably mm -hmm. from sure. you know, what your childhood was like. And right. what sort of experiences set you on this path? My dad is a civil engineer okay. and my mom passed away, but she was a radiographer and in the medical field. So you know, I had both of those sides. My sister is a doctor. I considered medicine for a long time, but really didn't want to give up the analytical, mathematical kind of side of it. So I ended up studying medicine for a while, but really to enhance my own mm -hmm. research. I think as well, Galway is a hub for medical device companies. So a lot of the larger uh, multinational medical device companies set up in Galway for their manufacturing and now their R&D is really strong there. So huge employer in Galway City. And that influenced some of the courses in the university. So the biomedical engineering degree, it was a four-year degree that was introduced just two years before I was choosing what I would study in undergrad. And it was a great combination right, for me right. coming from high school. You know, in Ireland, you decide when you're like 17 or yes, 18 what yes. you're going to study straight away. So that I felt like that was just a great combination. And that allowed me then to do an internship in a company, which ended up being the one I worked with after mm -hmm. graduation. And yeah, it was just a great mix of the two. And, you know, I think the university there and the research in that area has really grown and there's a good interaction between industry and academics there. So that allowed me to kind of have a stepping stone into industry in the U.S. and, and eventually academia in the U.S. as well. Oh, that's great. What do you think you'd be doing then if you weren't doing this kind of work? Do you think you would have gone into medicine? or I think probably, yes. Yeah, I really enjoyed it when I studied it. It's fascinating to learn about all the various aspects of medicine. And I, I really enjoy the part of my job when I think about designing devices that can ultimately help patients and improve patient outcomes. I think I can do that in the job I'm in now. But if it wasn't this, I would probably yeah. be doing it in medicine. So what do you like to do outside of work? Well, at the moment, I am very busy with a young family, so yes. I have three daughters, and wow. uh, yeah, they're two, five, and seven. Ah, so you have no free time. <laughs> so I don't really have a whole lot of time for myself, but uh, I enjoy bringing them to their activities and hanging out with them and spending time with them. They're, they're great fun. I have started to get back into doing some triathlons uh -huh. that I used to do when I was pre-kids. Pre <laughs> so just gradually getting back into that, which has been fun. I used to play traditional music as well when oh. I was in school in Ireland. Yeah, I haven't managed to do that for a while, but maybe, maybe soon. Do you find while you're triathloning or while mm -hmm. you're practicing for your triathlon, you're sort of running scientific ideas through your head? Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Often I think when you're 
writing a proposal or thinking yes. about how to frame something and you know you're writing at your desk but if you go for a run or, or a swim sometimes you can really clarify oh this is how I want to frame it if you're fit so you don't have to concentrate on breathing yeah, you well, can actually think about other right things. now I, I I do have to yes. concentrate on breathing <laughs> Anything you really want listeners to take away from your experience? In other words, yeah. if you were advising current students how to think about their futures, what sort of words of wisdom might you impart? I often get questions from students who are kind of considering whether to go an industry right. or academic route and, and maybe deciding between kind of medical device engineering or medicine. And I think my journey wasn't like linear, really. Right. You know, I went from undergrad to industry in Ireland and the US and then back to Ireland and then PhD much later, you know, it was like five years of industry in between. And then I studied medicine for a while and I did my PhD and then a postdoc back in Ireland and then here. So I think it's okay to take opportunities as they come up, as long as you're really passionate about what you do. And sometimes you go one route and, and it helps you to get to another one and it's not, gets up one way and there's no return. And there's really great ways now, I think, to combine some aspects of industry and academia, whether your primary appointment is in an academic institution or in industry, you can really collaborate a lot. And there's loads of jobs at that intersection too. And the same with different fields of research, mechanical engineering versus kind of bioengineering. I really enjoy being at the intersection of both. So I think it's very daunting deciding which path to take, but I think there are, are always ways to figure out and to craft your own niche. And often it's at the intersection of many worlds. Right. I mean, I think some of the multidisciplinary work that you've mm -hmm. described right. in a way required your nonlinear journey. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think your point about following your passions is really important because I think when people do something, take a step because they think it's going to be good for them yeah. or they think it's going to help their future work. You just don't know where things are going to yeah, go. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would never have guessed when I was in California that it would help me in a job as a professor at MIT. No way. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but exactly. it really has helped a lot. Exactly. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you. To our audience, I'd love to hear what you think of these podcasts, what you'd like to hear next. Send your suggestions to podcast at mit.edu or message at MIT on any social media platform. I look forward to hearing from you. And thank you all again for listening to Curiosity Unbounded. I very much hope you'll join us again. I'm Sally Kornbluth. Stay curious. <laughs> <laughs>